hi, Kristen and Nicole. Uh, thanks for joining us here on Mentor Chat. We're really excited um, to talk with you today a little bit more about um, your work and um, youth mental health and um, how we can best support young people with disabilities as well. But before we really get into our discussion, I was wondering if you could each tell us a little bit about yourselves, um, the work that you do, and also um, Partners for Youth with Disabilities, the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having us here today. We really appreciate the opportunity. I am Kristen, and I am the National Disability Mentoring Coalition Director at Partners for Youth with Disabilities. I've been with uh, PYD, or Partners for Youth with Disabilities, for the past 12 years, and I've been involved with mentoring for about 15 years, starting with a volunteer mentor role and um, worked with youth with disabilities for the past 15 years as well. And I'll turn it over to Nicole for an intro. Sure. Thank you, Ashley, for having us. Um, I'm Nicole. I am the Inclusion Communities Manager here at PYD. Um, and prior to um, being the Inclusion Communities Manager here, I was a special education teacher. Um, both in California and in Massachusetts. Um, so I've had many years working with young children with disabilities um, and their families, um, both in school roles and working with communities. Um, and I'm just excited to um, have this important discussion on mental health uh, today. I'm going to pass it back to Kristen um, to talk a little more about what our work at Partners for Youth with Disabilities. Thank you, Nicole. To give background on Partners for Youth with Disabilities, it started back in 1985, so it was five years before the Americans with Disabilities Act. And it started when our founder was working in a mentoring program and getting a lot of referrals from youth with disabilities and realized they were getting turned away from mentoring efforts. And she started out by matching nine youth with disabilities with nine adult mentors who shared a similar disability and realized that that was an empowering model. And over time, in addition to the one-to-one -one mentoring program, PYD developed programs around career readiness, theater programming, leadership development, both one-to-one -one group mentoring and online mentoring models. And our overarching mission is to empower youth with disabilities to reach their full potential through providing transformative mentoring programs, youth development opportunities, and inclusion expertise. And we motivate youth to reach their personal educational and career goals and guide organizations on becoming more inclusive. So it really has two sides. There's the direct service side of building the skills and abilities of young people. And then there's the more macro side of training and technical assistance to become more inclusive. And Nicole and I at the moment are working on our national side. So we have the um, great joy of training other programs. And in the National Disability Mentoring Coalition, 
the goal of that is really to raise awareness about the importance and the impact of mentoring in the lives of people with disabilities. So the NDMC is an initiative of Partners for Youth with Disabilities, and it started out in 2014. And as of 2018, it transitioned to PYD as its home. So really excited again to be here today. And um, and it was a pleasure to get to work with Mentoring Partnership of um, Southwest Pennsylvania in the Disability Mentoring Certificate Program. And um, just appreciate uh, meeting you through there and all of the work that, um, that you've done. So thank you so much for inviting us today. Yeah, I know we've really benefited from your support and from that certification. Um, I had the opportunity to go through it and I learned a tremendous amount and I know it's really made an impact on our organization and like continues to. Um, So we were really grateful for that opportunity. Thank you. Yeah. And I would say even through Ashley, like spearheading that work for our team, just being the byproducts of that learning has been refreshing. Um, And Ashley and Sophia, who's also on our team, their ability to kind of push us as a collective forward um, has been a great thing because you share that you are just a, a component of the work that you do is that you provide training and technical assistance. And that's a big bulk of our work with regard to the mentoring programs that we work with and helping build program capacity. So when we think about how we best do that, we need to make sure that we're highlighting this work and bringing inclusive conversations to the table and supporting all young people and what that looks like through mentorship um, so that we can provide the adequate resources that they need to, to do their job in the best way as possible. So if our, you know, our collective mission is to increase the quality and quantity of mentoring opportunities for young people, right? A lot of that, the work that you do really does center around quality and again, inclusion and making sure that no one's left behind, if you will. In in thinking about this season of Mentor Chat, we really wanted to center the conversation around youth mental health that has been just as a result of the pandemic, um, really thinking about how mentoring organizations are serving young people as a whole and how we're, as as mentors, we're, we're kind of that front line um, with regard to maybe understanding if there's challenges or just helping being able to model, you know, mental health and what that looks like in different spaces. Um, but one of the things that um, continue to come up in these conversations is this kind of collective trauma that we as a society have been through in the past few years, um, not just the pandemic alone, um, but with regard to racial injustice, and um, there, I mean, there's just so, so many things to name, but this, this sense of collective trauma. So the other thing that has come up in these conversations with regard to youth mental health is how this kind of collective trauma is still impacting 
how, how what we define as marginalized youth populations even more. So I was curious as if you could tell us a little bit about the intersection of trauma and disability as it, you know, as it relates to your work. And then if there are any best practices in your work for supporting um, young people with disabilities who have experienced trauma. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for uh, raising all of these important points and questions. And we definitely do see an intersection between disability and trauma and starting by kind of defining trauma as um, arising as a result of stress and our reaction to that stress. And we know that experiencing trauma can make someone more likely to develop a disability, whether that's anxiety, depression, PTSD, uh, ADHD. And then we also see a connection on the flip side. It, It goes both ways. So having a disability can also increase someone's exposure to traumatic experiences. Um, whether that's thinking about the medical model of disability defines um, disability as something wrong with the person and um, whether it's ableism in the way that society is structured to, to favor um, people without disabilities. So um, when you're really looking at the intersection, the arrows go both ways and um, build off of each other. But in uh, kind of transitioning to the supports, it's also important to think about that both trauma and disability can be non-apparent. People can be experiencing it whether you realize it or not. And so the practices that you implement can be helping and benefiting people in your program that you may not even realize are benefiting by doing that support. Uh, So that's something that they kind of have in common as well. And um, some best practices even start with conversations like these and realizing, um, understanding trauma, talking about it, understanding its impact, and knowing that, as you you mentioned, it is this collective widespread experience and it influences our thoughts and feelings and behaviors and just being kind of aware of that and how it affects both individuals and communities and being intentional about uh, in practice, what can be a best practice for understanding trauma is taking the time to do trainings, to learn how that can be manifesting in, in our programs and in our interactions and having that increased empathy and awareness is, is an important starting point. There are a variety of other trauma-informed principles as well that um, can be best practices for programs. And so uh, another one to highlight is a culture of self-care. So again, just related to understanding um, how much we're all impacted by it. If you, as a program, can create procedures and for self-care, whether that is having a policy about wellness days, uh, whether it's being proactive in your supervision conversations to, to be asking about self-care, 
Um, and then to be promoting this all across with your mentors, um, your youth volunteers, and even having resources too around modeling self-care practices such as mindfulness, grounding uh, exercises can all be helpful. Another trauma-informed principle is access to resources. So there's a, a phrase that I like, know what you don't know. And um, we can't be all things, but being aware of other supports within the community that you can develop relationships with for these warm referrals to connect youth and families to other supports that they might need whether that's as a program staff or as a mentor, training your mentors to be resource brokers is another uh, term that I like to, to find additional supports for that uh, wraparound type um, support for youth. And so those are just a few. Um, there's there's many more, but um, but I think just starting with understanding it and learning and um, prioritizing that is a good place to begin. One thing that uh, stuck out to me in what you said right there was the access point. And thinking back to some of Michelle's question about the pandemic, I know it has severely impacted access for like all of us. And I know that that was already a really big barrier for people with disabilities is like access. I know you mentioned the ableism that we have in our culture and the fact that not everything is like made with universal design uh, provides physical um, inaccessibility. And so thinking about how COVID has impacted all of our lives in like so many ways. Um, I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about what the specific impact of COVID has been like for the disability community um, in terms of like access and um, in other ways and how might that limiting yeah. of access and also the increased isolation that we've all experienced because I mean, between lockdown and then social distancing, the isolation has it's been a lot, um, but how has that also impacted the mental health of young people? I can um, start and then turn it to Nicole, but just one recent statistic that I heard uh, Rebecca Coakley share is that nearly a third of people who have COVID will have long haul mm -hmm. symptoms, and that equates to 10 million newly disabled individuals who might not know that they're protected under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so um, that really stood out to me. Um, but I'll turn it to Nicole to highlight some of the other ways. Yeah, um, I think it's so interesting because when we talk about um, the pandemic, we often don't think about the barriers that existed to individuals with disabilities like long before the pandemic. So, um, you know, we've, we have individuals who are immunocompromised who, you know, we're already concerned about, you know, just normal viruses that might, or viruses that might um, be mild for some people, maybe major for others. And so, you know, as a teacher working with individuals who are immunocompromised, I had to think about this 
when I had a simple cold myself, but it was important for me to know, you know, who my students were and how that would impact them and their families. Um, you know, so then that being exacerbated by the COVID pandemic. Um, and then on the mental health side, thinking about um, prior to the pandemic, the number one cause of disability in youth ages three to 17 was a mental health disability. Um, so that existed long prior to the pandemic. And I think we were starting to see the rise of mental health. And then that only um, not only brought about isolation, but what happens when children are not in school is they might not have those protections that individuals um, like school systems or um, teachers may be able or social workers may be able to catch like whether that's trauma at home or not having food resources that our school systems are able to um, provide then when those were um, essentially cut off in ways when the pandemic hit um, that only exacerbated this um, and then you just think about i know we talked about um, ableism before but um, you know, when the pandemic hit, we saw a huge rise in this kind of concept of medical ableism, where we saw rationing of care. So, you know, there wasn't enough resources and ventilators and um, supplies for individuals when the pandemic hit. And so doctors and um, healthcare workers were having to decide who gets these resources. And oftentimes they were just they were making decisions based on who they thought would survive. Um, and that automatically um, excludes individuals with disabilities who have prior conditions. So, you know, it, it further exacerbated this medical ableism. Um, and then there was also, um, when you're thinking about accessibility to resources during the pandemic, um, you know, there's there's definitely been improvement, um, but when vaccines were first rolled out, um, access to vaccines was a, a big, huge issue. Um, lack of transportation, um, lack of websites that were accessible. So individuals who were blind or low vision couldn't navigate these websites because they weren't um, translated into a way that they were able to access online. Um, and then a lot of our home tests um, for COVID are still inaccessible. Um, they, they just recently um, created a home test that individuals who are blind and low vision can use. But if you think about taking your home test, right, you're like using tubes and then you have to read lines and that's not accessible to everyone. So um, just thinking about all those things that existed prior and then were just purely exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, and, and also just, just to circle back on care, um, we've seen a nationwide shortage in employment in general. Um, I, I know that, you know, it, from stores to restaurants, there's a lack of employees at places and, and that also covers, um, what we call PCAs or personal care assistance for individuals with disabilities. And so, um, individuals with disabilities who, needs um, certain supports, whether it's at home or in the workplace, um, and, and receive this care are now finding that they are unable to find um, PCAs that um, 
that they can hire. And so essentially they have all these hours, but they can't find anyone who's consistent. And they're, you know, really families are struggling to find this care and having to leave jobs or, um, you know, basically go without. And um, that's been a real concern. And so there's, it's just, it's such a broad spectrum topic when we talk about that. Yeah, I appreciate the nuance that you gave to that answer. Um, I think I like asked it so quickly and you can think uh, very quickly about how the pandemic has like limited us in some ways, but it is really like complicated. And like you said, a lot of it has already been around. It's just the pandemic has like Mm -hmm. highlighted a lot of the issues that we've had. And it's unfortunate that it's taken a pandemic (laughs) to like really um, highlight some of it. And that also we're, um, now having to combat and think about um, these these things that these barriers that already existed along with like a global pandemic. So it feels like a lot <laughs> sometimes. I, I too like appreciate the thoroughness in your response because I'm like, at, actually at this point I was like, where is my notepad? So I could try to keep this all together. It's like taking notes, um, especially like your earlier response. I'm like, you just practically developed a one pager that would be (laughs) great for everybody. Um, So one of the things I think that stood out with regard to your response, Nicole, and then with regard to accessibility was something that I'm learning from Ashley and Sophia as they take the lead in participating in the certification was with regard to like, at, at the moment of the pandemic, like we all quickly scrambled to kind of re-envision what our work looked like. And one of those ways was creating support in virtual spaces. And in doing that, um, in some cases, like you're moving forward, but like a- accessibility took a whole new dimension when you're bringing folks together in um, virtual ways and what that looks like. So I know those are one of, that was like one of the ahas for us as far as how we support programs and how we educate programs or supporting young people and thinking about it's one thing to make sure you have a tool or the tool that the school uses, but is that really still accessible in what ways, right? Like how are we further um, creating isolation even in virtual spaces when we think we're like trying to make sure that relationships are coming together. Um, The other thing that stood out for me is that you mentioned almost like three components um, of where you've you've seen challenges in the workforce, challenges um, in the school community receiving support, um, and then in the community at large. And just coming out of our last season of the podcast, where we looked at kind of mentoring underneath that lens and what it kind of looks like in different spaces, are there recommendations? And this is a big question. So Mm -hmm. I I recognize like there's not going to be like this one, here's the, here's the answer. (laughs) Um, Are there recommendations for, for individuals or as a whole to help increase access to better support young people with disabilities? And I think about that in mentoring relationships specifically or caring adult relationships, um, just kind of folks working with young people in the workplace, in the community, in school, of some strategies or or tips or some things we should be implementing with regard to accessibility? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, accessibility is such a, 
is such a broad topic too, right? When we think about it and there's so much involved. And I think, you know, my overarching like big picture is always thinking about accessibility in the sense of inclusion, right? So what does it mean to establish a sense of belonging? Um, And that's really thinking, right? Like we want to create accessibility because we want our mentees and our mentors and our community at large to feel like they belong in in their world, right? Um, and that can look different for everyone. So for some people, some individuals with disabilities really thrived on virtual learning, virtual participation, because their environment in a school system may have been too overstimulating, um, too distracting, and so virtual for them worked really well. On the flip side, for other individuals who really needed that social input, the virtual learning created a barrier to that where they were kind of home and isolated. Um, So I think, you know, the biggest thing to think about first when you start thinking about accessibility is that one size does not fit all. Um, And that you really first need to figure out, you know, who your community is, who your mentees are, who your mentors are, what the individuals in your specific program need. Um, And then think about like, are there resources um, kind of like what Kristen was alluding to with um, wraparound supports? Like how, how do we need to have access to all of these certain resources in order to maximize everyone's participation, whether that's um, like, personnel supports or accessible websites and virtual spaces, um, in-person spaces, break spaces, um, you know, the physical accessibility aspect of like being in person, the virtual accessibility aspect, and then just the overall overarching accessibility, whether, um, you know, that's individual supports or group supports. And one thing to think about in terms of like thinking about support personnel when we're talking about um, accessibility of mental health resources um, is thinking about how those supports are presented in a way that's accessible. We know that um, mental health resources are often fairly expensive and the wait lists are incredibly long. Um, I was listening to a, a podcast recently that was discussing how um, screening processes are really important to decreasing wait times for um, mental health resources. So if the individuals in your program need access to re- mental health resources in order to thrive, we also have to think about how we connect them to those resources in an accessible way because saying you're on an eight month wait list is not accessible. Um, so how are we going to do that? You know, is that establishing online support groups? Is that finding community members who can come into your program and assist one-to-one? Um, are there webinars and workshops that you can use that might be free or low cost or sliding scale to help your mentors and mentees? Um, and, and then also, you know, tied along to that, if it, if it needs to be virtual, do we have access to accessible technology? And with that also thinking about the cost of technology. So, um, 
it's all very intertwined and again, very nuanced. Um, and it, it would be lovely to say all of this is um, easy to put together. <laughs> um, but as we all know, it, it's a lot of trial and error. And I think, you know, going back to that, what does your community really need and trying it out? Um, asking your community is really important. Um, thinking about what the needs in your community are um, within your program and, and constantly assessing if, if accessibility needs are met or if there are individuals that come and go in your program and you need to constantly revise what accessibility looks like in your program. Does, if I could really quick just ask, does some of that too, it sounds like, and, and you didn't imply, but Ashley brought this up and I would love to just dive a little deeper there. Does some of that also then go into the concept of universal design as well? Like we know mm-hmm. we're listening to, to Youth Voice, et cetera, but um, that was another like learning. And then I had a personal experience last mm-hmm. year and you think about universal design, like this seems like a no brainer, but obviously it's not. Um, it sounded like some of your response was kind of underpinned by that, right? Like if, if because it's going to be different for everyone, um, can you tell the listeners like what universal design is, kind of how that plays out in this conversation we're having with regard to accessibility and serving young people better, people better, period. Um, but can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So yeah, you're so right. Universal design is a concept that basically states that if we create systems um, in place that really um, at the forefront set up a design where we think about everyone, um, whether that's access to learning, engagement, um, or the way that they um, receive knowledge, um, and, and the best way to describe this, I always like, is, you know, if we were to visualize, um, you know, so many buildings in our communities have stairs. And there's a picture of um, stairs and a ramp. And why the stairs are always shoveled first when there's snow. Why don't we shovel the ramp first? Because individuals with wheelchairs can utilize the ramp and individuals who are who utilize walking or other mobility devices can also use the ramp. But if we shovel the stairs first, the individuals who use wheelchairs still can't get up the stairs. Um, So it's rethinking our access to to any content, the way we receive content, the way we distribute content, and the way we engage with content, um, and thinking about how we design that in a way that can include as many people as possible. Um, there is kind of uh, this, you know, we try to be as universal as possible, but universal design also means that like, it may not work for everyone because again, every individual is different. So you might create something with the best of intentions that we believe is universally designed, but then going back to that drawing board and really checking in with your community and seeing like, does this work for the people that we are serving? And if not, going back to the drawing board and saying, what do we need to fix? Um, So really keeping in mind um, kind of that iterative process of of creating something with universal design in mind, but then going back to the drawing board and asking, you know, did this establish and create what we wanted it to create? Um, And then going from there. And 
and really just thinking of different creative ways that we can um, engage with people. I think that the pandemic in some ways really brought that out in some of us. I think at first, many people were a little um, hesitant about what virtual learning might look like or virtual meetings. Um, and actually, you know, to see the beauty and how that really translated was, was phenomenal. Um, so along those lines to thinking about as we move into a different stage of the pandemic, how do we make sure that we keep those virtual channels open for those individuals with disabilities who thrived that way? Because we do see programs and communities who are starting to cut those back. Um, I, I just received an email about a, a group that I was participating in that decided they were going back in person. And I live too far from this community. So all of a sudden, last week, I was cut off from this community. And that was really sad to me. Um, so, you know, we can establish ways to return in person, but keeping those aspects of universal design and accessibility in the virtual space to make it hybrid so that we are meeting the needs of everyone in our community. Excellent. Thank you. I was going to mention, say the exact same thing, Michelle. You just uh, beat me to it. But <laughs> because... Uh, <laughs> Learning about the concept of universal design, I think, was really helpful for me. Um, and like seeing an example in front of you of like what this can look like, because it it can feel uh, like an impossible task sometimes. But there are already the principles out there. So if folks listening haven't heard about universal design, I definitely encourage you to like look it up, see what it's about, um, and it doesn't it benefits everyone. Like it's for everyone. Like no matter um, if you have a disability, like what your disability is, but because just thinking about like the ramp, it doesn't just benefit people who are like walking or like wheelchairs. If someone has a suitcase or like a kid with mm -hmm. tiny legs, like has a hard time getting up the stairs or someone with a stroller. So it's um, a really uh, great like concept and, um, thinking about like mentoring programs and how we're like working in schools and how we're delivering programming, I think it can also be really beneficial in um, thinking about how we deliver services and how we support people too. So, so we've talked a lot. We've had like a big conversation, and um, <laughs> I, but we wanted to end on kind of a, a hopeful note. Not that some of our conversation wasn't hopeful, but on a hopeful note, kind of like looking forward to the future. Um, and I was looking on PYD's website and I saw that it's listed as a goal of PYD is to create a world where young people with disabilities will be able to live with dignity and pride in who they are and to lead self-determined lives filled with purpose. And I think that's a really beautiful goal. Um, and it's really aspirational and like inspiring and, when I read that, I think I really want to live in that place. Um, and I really want that to mm. be like a reality. So I was curious um, about what that world looks like to each of you. And also like what makes you hopeful that we will be able to create that. Mm. Thank you for, um, for asking us that 
question, I, I think that uh, related to a lot of our conversation, it looks like a world where we're breaking down the walls of exclusion and the barriers of ableism and uh, really where everyone has access to a mentor and to meaningful connections and um, people with disabilities having equal opportunity access and independence to meaningfully participate in every aspect of life. And as to uh, one thing that makes me hopeful in kind of the, the work that I do with, I uh, mentioned earlier, PYD, we have direct service and then training. And with the direct service work, getting to meet young leaders with disabilities through programs like the Youth Leadership Forum and seeing their advocacy for social change is always something that's encouraging. And on the kind of training side, getting to work with organizations like yourself who are continuously learning and challenging the status quo and really working to implement inclusive programs, um, that, that also gives me hope. Yeah, I'll piggyback on that. I think from the from the youth side, I see such a transformation in the way that we talk about mental health. And it is um, phenomenal to me because I think in generations past, it's carried such a stigma. And I think we didn't have the conversations. We were just told to kind of, you know, hide it a little bit, push it down, not really talk about it with people. And the younger generation is pushing back. You see a lot of representation from um you know, whether it's music and singers or actors and athletes really speaking out about how mental health is so critical and they need to take care of themselves first before they, you know, do their sport or carry out their concert. Um, and I think that's a huge shift in our culture. Um, and I see the youth that participate in our Youth Leadership Forum and Youth Leaders Rising really having these conversations with one another. And um, being open and willing to to open their themselves to be vulnerable and give each other feedback and be supportive of one another. Um, and I think we can really all learn from that um, as we work in our workplaces to think about um, kind of like what Kristen was talking about at the very beginning um, with trauma. Like we don't know who we're working with, who may have experienced trauma, who may be going through a hard time. So really just approaching everyone with that that kindness and that understanding that we are going to ask each other what each other needs and we're going to check in with each other and we're going to make sure that one another are okay so that we can keep doing the job that we're doing. Um, and then I think from the national and training side, just seeing all of these wonderful organizations, big, small, across the country, across the world, um, really getting in on the disability conversation, getting in on the racial injustice conversation, the intersectionality conversation, um, and and having these important and sometimes difficult conversations, um, but they need to be out there because if we don't discuss them, we can never move forward. So I think that gives me a lot of hope that we're, we are um, having these open dialogues and we appreciate you having us to have these open dialogues. Mm -hmm. Well, we're grateful for you all to be here, your willingness to share, your willingness just now to paint a picture of what living in a world like that could look like. Um, I have to agree that I am inspired, one, just by youth 
again, just taking that stance and really owning and advocating for themselves. I'm seeing that more and more where I think in my generation, it would be like, go along to get along, if you will, especially working with adults. It's like, no, we're the wise ones, you taking the information. And that's not the case. And I think they're going to push us as adults to be greater and thinking about how in the past we we weren't as willing to have these conversations, but creating the space. I think they're, if we give them the room and the platform to do that, they're, they're going to that championing that work, that role well. So I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to have this platform to speak with experts like yourself, to uplift the work that you all are doing in relation to relationships, really, that I mean, that's what it boils down to is um, being in relationship with people, seeing them as they are, give, making them feel like we talked about belonging, right? And what that looks like for, for different people. We all have that sense of belonging in different spaces in different ways based on kind of what meets our needs. So I echo that. Thank you. I echo... Um, just the appreciation for your work and thank you for your time today. Um, like I said, it sparked a, a number of other questions. So <laughs> hopefully mm-hmm. we can keep conversations going. Um, but any resources that you have to share that we can make sure we make available to listeners, um, please pass those along. We can share them in the show notes. Uh, Cause I think there was so, like I said, I wish I was had notes. I think there was so much to capture there that if you have any takeaways that we can link up for listeners um, to kind of do some of their own self-work, that would be awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you.